Welcome to Contemplate, a Bible teaching ministry of Pastor David Robinson and brought to you by Acts Church in Vancouver, Washington. We're in the book of Acts where the disciples decide to choose someone to fill the place of Judas. And there's a lot to learn, so let's dive in. Here's Pastor David with today's episode, recorded live at Acts Church. Verse 12 is where we are. So if you got your Bible, Acts 1, verse 12, it says this. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. All right, it says, then they returned to Jerusalem. So prior to this time, remember, we just have, we just have the risen Jesus ascending into heaven. Prior to that, the disciples, who were not from Jerusalem, had been in Jerusalem with Jesus prior to his death. He had been teaching. He had come for the Passover. Jesus knew that he had come and he was going to die. He had come to, to do that, and he was teaching, and the disciples were with him, and, and they were doing their thing, and then Jesus was crucified. And then he rose from the dead, and he was hanging out in Jerusalem and around that area, and then he, then he ascends from, uh, from the Mount of Olives, and he tells these disciples, hey, Stay in Jerusalem. We see that earlier on. He tells them to, to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit that was going to come. So the first thing we see the disciples doing is being obedient. They go back to Jerusalem because he tells us this is where the church is going to start. Earlier on, we read a few weeks ago, it says, You shall be my witnesses. You shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So we know that the church is going to start in Jerusalem. It's an important place. As you'll see biblically throughout the whole Bible, Jerusalem's an important place. It's also the place where Jesus was rejected and crucified, where, they really, where, where the Jews had turned against him. It's kind of a strange place to then try to start Christianity, but it's also the place where he appeared alive to so many people. So we're going to see as we move forward that, that these amazing things happen through the power of the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem to really get the church to explode. So they return to Jerusalem. It says, from the mount called Olivet. Mount called Olivet, or the Mount of Olives. You may have heard of this place before. It's mentioned in the Old Testament, actually. It's also mentioned a lot of times in the New Testament. Jesus would hang out there. He would, he would go to the Mount of Olives. It was one of his places he liked to go, and he would teach people. Then he'd go back into Jerusalem in the evening, and then he'd come out during the day, and he'd go to the Mount of Olives and teach people. It's also where the Garden of Gethsemane is. If you've ever heard of the Garden of Gethsemane, it's at the foot of the Mount of Olives. The Garden of Gethsemane is where Jesus was praying to God prior to being arrested and taken to be crucified. So that's where he was. That's when Judas betrayed him. He was there in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's there at the Mount of Olives, right at the foot of the Mount of Olives. So that's where we are kind of um, geographically. We've got a picture of the Mount of Olives. There it is. This is what it looks like now. Um, I guess you can't really see much. Pretty exciting, but that's it. It's a real place. This is where he was. Kind of just brings it to, hey, this isn't a fairy book. This is a book about real places and real things. And, and the next thing that is said shows us that he says, a Sabbath day's journey. Luke mentions that the Mount of Olives is about a Sabbath day journey from Jerusalem. So a Sabbath day, back in, in, in earlier on, the, the Jewish people had some rules. The Ten Commandments, we've probably heard of those. One of them said that we are to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. That God created the earth in six days, and on the seventh day he rested, and that this was a pattern for us, that the Sabbath was for us. On that seventh day we were to spend time with family, spend time worshiping God, and resting. So that was what God had set up the Sabbath for. He set it up for us 
so that we could be able to just rest and take a break. And the Jews, as, as we do oftentimes, the Jewish people here, took that thing so seriously that they started to make a bunch of more rules about it. So instead of just having the rule, hey, take that Sabbath day off, they started saying, well, how do we do that? And they made all kinds of different rules about what you could do and what you couldn't do and how far you could go and how far you couldn't go and so on. And one of the things that they eventually came up with, there's a passage in Joshua that led them to the idea that you could walk approximately 2,000 cubits on the Sabbath without being in sin. So you're not supposed to work, but you can go 2,000 cubits from your city, essentially, without being in sin. I know that you all know what a cubit is, right? No, no me neither. Um, a cubit is the, the length between you know, your hand and your elbow. A man's hand and elbow, it's about 18 inches. Now, if a man happens to be a lot taller, I guess he gets bigger stuff than the same amount of cubits. But it's about 18 inches, and so 2,000 cubits is about 3,000 feet. A mile is about 5,280 feet, so you can figure 3,000 feet. It's a little over half a mile. And in fact, they have a church there on the Mount of Olives now. It's called the Church of the Ascension, and it is supposed to be at the place where Jesus actually ascended up to heaven. I don't know how they know that, uh, but we'll just assume that they're right. And in any case, from that church or from that area where it's believed that Jesus ascended to heaven to the eastern gate of Jerusalem is right about a half a mile. Now, why is, why is Luke telling us this? Why is he mentioning that it's a Sabbath day's journey? Uh, he's mentioning it, I think, because he's showing the detail with which he's keeping this record. He wants you to know that even in the small details, he's being accurate, and you can go check it out, because some of the things we're going to hear in the book of Acts are quite hard to believe. Some of the miracles we see, some of the things we see happen, they're hard to believe, and Luke wants to say, hey, look, you can check me down to the smallest detail, how far they walked on this particular day, and see that it's accurate. That will make it easier for you to believe when I tell you something that's a little bit harder to believe. And people, of course, have gone and checked out Luke and found him to be an incredibly accurate historian. We've talked about this before. Acts is about facts. Luke is a doctor. He's recording, scientifically recording facts. That's, I think, why it says that there. Let's move on to verse 13. We're all the way through one verse, so we only got, you know, 13 or so to go. Uh, verse 13, it says, And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. We don't know whether this is the same upper room that's mentioned in the Gospels where the disciples have um, their last supper with Christ. We don't know whether this is the same place. It could be. It could be the same exact room. We're not sure. It's certainly an upper room on the second story of some house there in Jerusalem. And so they're, they're in this upper room. And it says, and then it lists who's there. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. So we have 11 names here. And we specifically have 11 names listed because there's one that's missing. And that's Judas Iscariot, the disciple who betrayed Christ. Now, I was told after last, last the first service that there is a Judas mentioned here, and there is. Judas, the son of James, he hasn't put his daddy's name on there specifically because he doesn't want to be connected to this other Judas. Okay, There were two Judases that were disciples. It was a common name at the time. Um, and so Judas Iscariot is the one who had betrayed Jesus, and he's not listed here. Okay, And that's important for this passage because we're going to kind of go through and we're going to see what they do about the fact that they only have 11 disciples. All right. It says, These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. With one accord. Uh, that basically means that they were completely unified. 
They were completely unified in their purpose and what they were doing. This may be the only time in history that the church has been 100% completely unified. Right? Because it didn't take long after that until we start kind of getting off into some, well, yeah, I believe all the main things, but we just kind of like to do music this way. I believe all these things, but we just kind of like to do this thing this way. Um, and, that's, and that's just what's happened over time with the church, is that it hasn't stayed totally unified. On the basics, on the most important things, the majority of all believers are very, very, very close. In fact, the differences between you know, your normal denominations are so small compared to anything like the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian and what they believe. Okay, so, so we're not all that far away from one another. But here, they're totally unified. And it makes mention of it. Hey, they're all in one accord. That's not the Honda kind. They wouldn't fit in there. It's just uh, they're all together, right? And it says in prayer and supplication. So we know what prayer is. They're talking to God. And supplication. Supplication, there's a word that you may have heard before. It's supplicant. Same, same root here of this word. And it means a supplicant was like someone who would come before the king and ask for something. In order to be in supplication, you have to see yourself as completely bankrupt, as completely without the ability to help yourself, as completely in need. You're humble. You're asking. You're begging. You're saying, God, I need. You're poor in spirit, as Jesus says in, in the Beatitudes and in, in his Sermon on the Mount. He talks about blessed are the poor in spirit, those who are humble, those who recognize where they truly stand. Those who are not so prideful that they think they don't need me. So here we have the disciples. They're together. They're praying. And they're recognizing their need for God. That, they're, that they can't do anything without him. It says that this is who was with him. It says, with the women. Now, I just want to stop there for a second. Because that will float by us as 21st century United States of America folks. But first century Israeli folks would not have mentioned the women here as though they were totally equal with the men, which is what they're saying. Here's the men and here's the women. That's, that, is, that is absolutely mind-blowing countercultural for these folks at this time. Once again, showing that the Bible, that God's view of women as equal with men was something that was very, very difficult for them to understand. And yet it comes up over and over and over again from the women that helped Jesus to the women that were the first to witness his resurrection to the women here, to the women that we'll see mentioned through Acts and through the rest of the Bible that are equal, that are together, that are starting the church with the men. This is a very, very important thing to understand that this was very, very countercultural for them. Jesus had flipped the script on men and women and how they work together. So it says in the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, this is actually the last time we hear about Mary in the Bible. This is the last time she's mentioned. While Jesus is dying on the cross, he asks his disciple John to take care of his mother, Mary. And so the assumption is that after, after this moment here where she's with the church and with the early church, that she would go to John's home and he would have, he would have taken her, care of her there. But we actually see nothing, nothing more written about her after this. And it says, and with his brothers. And this is the funky part. And we talked a few weeks ago when we were talking about the resurrection of Christ. We talked about how um, if you tell your brother that you're God, he doesn't probably buy into that. Probably, right? If you tell your brother or your sister, hey, by the way, I'm God, um, and wait for their response, their response is probably not going to be to start bowing down and worshiping you, right? And they didn't. And we see earlier in the, in, the, in the scripture, in the gospels, we see that his brothers didn't believe that he was God. They thought he was a little nutty. 
right? They thought he was a little crazy. But here they believe. They believe that he's God. They're actually with the disciples in the early church that's about to start. They're praying in supplication to him, to God, believing that Jesus is God. How does that happen? It happened because they saw him alive after he was dead. They were his brothers, and they realized that, there was a, that they had a physical brotherhood with Jesus, but that he was actually God. He rose from the dead, and people don't do that. People don't just rise from the dead. And so they realized that he was God. He had come to them. He had, he had revealed himself to them. And now his own brothers are worshiping him. Pretty wild stuff, really. Now it says, And in those days Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. He was never shy about doing that type of thing. And, and here he does it. And it says, in parentheses, it says, Altogether the number of names was about 120. So they're in this upper room. And there's the disciples, there's the women, there's Mary, there's his brothers, there's all these folks. And there's about 120 of them. Now, I'm hoping that that was a good-sized room because they didn't have air conditioning in first century Jerusalem. And it would have been pretty rough to have 120 people in a small room. But that's how many people were there. So once again, Luke is throwing in this factoid, this little thing, so we know, so we're in context, so we see, okay, there's 120 of these people. And he said, this is what Peter said, Men and brethren... This scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David. Okay, let me me stop there for a second. Peter is giving us a quick theology on scripture. Just right there in that sentence. He says, this scripture had to be fulfilled. Now, what he means is, is that there's prophecy in the Old Testament that needed to be fulfilled now. And what we see as we look back, the Old Testament is this bigger part, the beginning part of your Bible. And in that, which is written hundreds and hundreds of years before the New Testament, there's prophecy after prophecy, prediction after prediction about what will happen in the future. And what we see is that in the New Testament, over and over and over and over again, these predictions come true. So Peter's aware that one of the things that validates Scripture is that there's prophecies that come true. And he sees that any prophecy that's made needs to come true later on. There's actually, there's a source that I read that said there are 354 separate Old Testament prophecies just about the person of Jesus. That just that issue alone, 354 separate ones that came true in Jesus' life. That's a lot. I couldn't make one prophecy. I can't pick who's going to win the game, let alone make 354 specific prophecies about a person who would not live for another thousand or several hundred years. So it's pretty wild stuff. But Peter sees that's what has to happen. Then he says, that the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David. He's talking about the Psalms, the book of Psalms, which is in the Bible, where David said different things or wrote down different things. He's saying that it was the Holy Spirit speaking through David. So what he's saying is, Scripture is something that's full of prophecy that gets fulfilled, and all Scripture is something that is spoken by the Holy Spirit through a human author. And that's what we believe about it. We believe that, in fact, what we're reading right now from Luke is something that was inspired by the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit spoke through Luke, and and that's why these words are here. That's why we're reading them. That's why we've got this many people sitting in a room 2,000 years later studying this book, because we believe it's it's the Word of God. Okay, and so he says, um, who became a guide... Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. So as I told you, Judas is one of Jesus' 12 disciples. There were 12, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 disciples. Judas was one of them, and he betrayed Jesus on the night that Jesus was arrested and crucified. And so, he, so 
Peter is saying, hey, there's this prophecy about him that needs to be fulfilled. And then we get these next two verses, which are in parentheses. It's a parenthetical statement. It's kind of separate from, from the main line of the story. So we're going to pull it out, and we're going to deal with it separately. This is what it says, verse 18. It says, Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out. Welcome to church. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem. So that field is called in their own language, Akel Dama, that is field of blood. I have no idea if that's really how you pronounce that, but that's, it sounded good to me. Um, now here's the problem with this. So people attack scripture. And one of the things they attack is they say that scripture has all kinds of contradictions. You've probably heard this. Scripture oh, it contradicts itself all the time. We've just run into one of the big ones that they talk about here. Put up the, the slide that has Matthew 27. Okay. Matthew 27, 5 here on the left. Here's what it says. Then he, he's talking about Judas, threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. That's different than this one over here that says he burst open in the middle and all his entrails gushed out. So we got, we got a problem, right? Or at least people try to suggest that we do. Here's the thing. There's no problem with this. These are two parts of the same story. Here's what happened. And this is uh, going to be a little bit gross, but I'm going to just tell you what happened, okay? Judas goes out, and there's a tree, and he climbs up in the tree, and he puts a rope around his neck, and he hangs himself, and he dies. And he sits there dead in the hot sun of Jerusalem for a while, and nobody finds him. And what happens when you die, and your body starts to decompose, is that gases are created within you, and you start to expand, Okay, this is pretty nasty, but this is what happened. So his body is, is expanding and, and getting bigger. And then at some point, either somebody cuts him down or the branch breaks, and Judas hits the ground. Hmm. <laughs> uh, that's what happened. Okay? Matthew's recording one part. Luke's recording another part. So this is not a contradiction. And it's not a contradiction because... First of all, Matthew wrote his book before Luke wrote his book. The common belief is that, that Matthew came first. So if Luke was writing, uh, was writing the same story, why wouldn't he have just, he would have been aware of Matthew. Why wouldn't he have just made sure he said the same thing? Well, because he didn't think it was a contradiction. Because he knew he was telling another part of the story. Luke doesn't say, this is how Judas died. He just records what happened. He records the latter part of it. And he also says, everybody in Jerusalem knew about this became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem at that time. So this, this is no secret. This didn't happen in some corner somewhere. This happened. Everybody knew about it. This was the guy who betrayed Jesus, that he died, that he burst open. I mean, that's the type of thing you're going to hear about. Even now, I think if something like that happened, we would probably hear about it. Did you hear about the dude who just exploded down the street? That's right. It's like a 2020 on that. So, so everybody knew about this. There's no secret that this happened. Okay. So this is not... Not a contradiction. Matthew records the death. Luke, the doctor, records the slightly more disgusting end part of it. And that's what we get. That's how we get the whole story. Scripture works like that. It's not a contradiction. All right, let's move forward. Let's get back to these prophecies. So remember, Peter is saying that there's these prophecies that have to be fulfilled about Judas. Verse 20, he starts and he says, For it is written in the book of, the Psalm, of, book of Psalms, Let his dwelling place be desolate, and let no one live in it. That is referring to this part that was just mentioned before about 
him dying and exploding all over the ground. They had bought this, this land that he died in. It was a potter's field. It's where they buried poor people who couldn't afford to be buried. So it was, in fact, desolate, and no one lived there. This is, what, this is, this is the prophecy that's being uh, fulfilled there. And then he says, and let another take his office. And so Peter's saying, okay, we have to get somebody else in here. Somebody else has got to take Judas's office. This, is, this was prophesied in the Psalms, and now we've got to do it. So he says, therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time, that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. A couple things here. Apparently, there were a lot more people than just the 12 disciples. See, the Bible stories, and like, I don't know if any of you went to Sunday school back in the day, they had like the flannelgrams, and they put up little pictures on the thing and stuff. It's always just the 12 disciples. There was never like random dudes. It was always just the 12 disciples. Well, apparently, there were random dudes. There were people who had been there, not just that came around here or there, but had, had been there from the very beginning, from the time that Jesus was baptized. The Holy Spirit descended like a dove. The Father spoke from heaven. This is my Son in whom I, I am well pleased. We see the Trinity coming together in Christ and then him starting his ministry all the way to him ascending on the Mount of Olives just a few days before this time. These guys had seen all of that. So that's an interesting thing to know. They say they've got to become witnesses of his resurrection. Once again, Luke is pointing out that the church starts, the power of the church, the cornerstone of the church, the reason that people were like, yeah, I better listen to this, is because of Christ's resurrection that he rose from the dead. So, we, so this is what, what uh, Peter is saying. Then he says, and, and they proposed to Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice. Um, so apparently he's got two different first names, Joseph called Barsabbas, and his last name is Justice, and Matthias. Matthias only gets one name. Um, he says, and they prayed and said, you, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go down to his own place. And they cast their lots and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So here's what happened. Peter and the disciples say, okay, let's make these, this criteria about how we're going to choose this 12th disciple. We're just going to choose somebody who's been with us the whole time. Then of those guys, they pick a couple of them out. And then they pray, Lord, show us which one of these guys you want us to pick. And then they flipped a coin. It's a little different. Uh, it was called casting lots. We hear a lot about casting lots uh, in the Old Testament. A lot about it, because back then, the way that the Holy Spirit worked back in the Old Testament was the Holy Spirit would, would come down and would come upon people for certain types of things, for power, to write scripture, in war, God would show his hands and so on. But we didn't see the Holy Spirit like we do now, after Pentecost, which we'll talk about. I don't want to get too far ahead, but where the Holy Spirit's here and he's in every believer all the time. That's not the, the way that things were. So... The priests had what they called the Urim and the Thummim, or the Thummim. And they were basically two rocks, a white one and a black one. And they'd have it in their vestments, in a, in a little bag. And they would ask a question of the Lord, and then they would pull one of these things out, and that would be the answer, white or black. Kind of like flipping a coin, right? Kind of like a one or the other. 
You'll want to listen to the next episode where we'll learn more about this choice of Matthias. One of the things that struck me again today is just how reliable the Bible is. It's not a fairy tale, it's facts, stuff we can really trust and build our lives upon. And if this kind of Bible-based teaching appeals to you, come see us this Sunday morning at Axe Church in Vancouver, Washington. Get directions and all the info you need at axechurchnw.org or call 360-885-9000. Thanks for listening, and there's much more to come with Pastor David Robinson here on Contemplate.